Now, I suspect that you might be rather fed up with hearing about coronavirus. It so dominated the news. And you'd rather have a break from hearing about it. But it's clearly prominent. It clearly matters. It's a bit hard to judge how much. And, you know, how much are we getting a load of panic? And how much is this representative? But it clearly does matter and is worrying people. And so we should at least once give some time to what does the Bible say about it. We're hearing a lot from the world. And I thought we should at least once hear from the Bible about coronavirus. But before that, Jurgen Klopp, do you know who he is? Liverpool manager. He was interviewed on TV, as football managers often are, and he was asked about football and about the team, and then the interviewer asked him about coronavirus. Now, if you know Jurgen Klopp, he always comes across as such a nice guy. Everyone likes him. Well, I suppose not if you're Man U or Man City, but they don't count. But it's such a nice guy. But when the, when the interviewer asked him about coronavirus, he really got quite worked up. I'm a football manager. I, I don't understand this... People asking celebrities and football managers about serious matters, like coronavirus. He said, ask me about football and I know. Coronavirus, you should be asking the experts. I'm not going to answer you. Well, that was quite sensible. And I think that's the right attitude for me to take this evening. I'm not an expert on coronavirus. I probably know less than most people here about coronavirus. I'm not going to be making any comment on how serious it is, or what is likely to happen, I don't know. But instead I'm going to tell you what the Bible says about illnesses and troubles. Not all, because the Bible has such a lot to say. But I just want to remind you of the basics. The main things that you probably know already, but we need to apply to our current situation. I'll have things to say about dying, But that's not making any pronouncement about how likely someone is to die from it. But people have died and people are clearly worried. So let's hear what the Bible says about coronavirus. We're not going to be in any one passage. We're going to have quite a few different places to look at. So if you're quick with turning, you'll find it helpful to turn. If you're not, just listen as I read those verses to you. What does the Bible say about coronavirus? First of all, it explains. It explains. Let's start in Genesis chapter 3. And I hope you would expect that, because that's where we've got to go to start with. Genesis chapter 3. Here we have mankind's rebellion. And we find in chapter 3 that mankind's rebellion against God leads to a breaking of relationships. The relationship between mankind and God is broken. The relationship between man and woman gets broken, or we could put that more generally, between people gets broken. And the relationship between mankind and creation, the natural world, gets broken. Genesis 3, verse 17. Because of this rebellion, verse 17, cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground. Since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. 
is telling us our sin has brought a change to the natural world. It's not just all in the spiritual realm. It's not just all in the eternal future. It's brought a change to the natural world now. So whatever you might think about how to interpret Genesis 1-3, to and that is difficult, and there are probably a variety, well I know there are a variety of opinions here in this room, whatever you think about that, you must factor in the Bible says human sin has changed the natural world around us and has brought in death. It's described this way in Romans 8. It would be a help if you turn to Romans chapter 8. And we have the same thing described in a different way. Romans chapter 8, verse 20. Romans 8, verse 20. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning in the, as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Now, do you notice some of the words there used to describe the natural world now? Let's hear some of them. Can you spot, and people tell us, some of the words used to describe the world now? Groaning, frustrated, Suffering? It certainly is describing suffering, isn't it? Bondage. Bondage. So that is the opposite to freedom, which is the word that comes a bit later in that sentence. It's bound, it's captive. Anything else? Decay. So it's, it's bound by this principle that everything decays all the time. Have we missed anything else out? It's subjected to something, so it's brought under something, and the something is frustration, which I think we've already heard. So it's waiting. It's in a waiting stage. There's something yet to happen. It's having to wait for it. And verse 22, pain. There's pain, the pain of childbirth, which I'm told is pretty extreme pain. Well, that's all describing a world where nature isn't working the way it was originally designed to work. To put it in other words, it gets viruses and pandemics and people die. And notice how it's described in verse 20, the creation was subjected. It's been put under. Someone's done this to creation. The someone obviously being God. He's put it under this system. Or the language of Genesis 3 is... Cursed is the world because of you. That's something God does. Both Genesis 3 and Romans 8 say this isn't just a natural consequence. Sometimes people wanting, we don't want to talk about judgment too much, but we know bad stuff comes from sin, so we just call it a consequence. The Bible doesn't just call it a consequence. It says it's God's active judgment. God has actively done this. Genesis 3, cursed... 
Romans 8, subjected the world. God's actively done it. And that's described further in Romans, uh, in Revelation 8 to 9. We won't, I don't think we need to turn to that at the moment, Revelation 8 to 9. But that's why we read uh, that chapter 8 and a bit of chapter 9 earlier on. It describes this judgment from God. You see, in chaos and turmoil and suffering, people often say, where is God? Look at the chaos. Look at the suffering. Where is God? Well, Revelation is a book of chaos and turmoil and suffering. Whatever you don't understand from the book, if you read it, which I hope you do, you will find that is plain. There's chaos and turmoil and suffering. Including what Revelation calls plagues. We would call them pandemics or viruses. But Revelation is also a book of God's action. God in control and God bringing judgment on the world. That's made clear from what we read at the beginning of chapter 8. We read that there were angels standing before God and he gave them trumpets and he sends them out and they blow their trumpets and the troubles come. It's all pictorial language, but it's saying it's God bringing these things. Revelation says the chaos, turmoil and suffering don't indicate God is absent. They indicate God is active. But he's a God of judgment on a world in rebellion against him. By the way, as I said before, we read chapter 8, I'm taking what is happening there in chapters 8 and 9 as not describing some unique event at the end of the world, but in picture language, describing what happens across history, from Jesus ascending to heaven until he returns from heaven. Troubles that we face, including things like coronavirus. So, we're looking to see the Bible's explanation of why things like coronavirus happen. We're seeing we're in rebellion and God is a God who judges. It's a world that's subjected to frustration and under a curse. But the Bible also explains our relationship as Christians to this. And it says we are not exempt. Let's turn to the middle of our Bibles, to the Psalms. See what you make of Psalm 91. Psalm 91. What do you make of this when we read Psalm 91? We'll read the first seven verses, I think. Psalm 91, verse 1. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Surely He will save you from the fowler's snare and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with His feathers and under His wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness will be your shield and rampart. You will not fear the terror of night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, nor the plague that destroys at midday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only observe with your eyes and see the punishment of the wicked. Now that verse 6 and 7 are wonderful, aren't they, for us with coronavirus? It talks about 
pestilences and plagues, old-fashioned words for pandemics and viruses. And it says, don't fear. You might have all your neighbours dying of it, but it's not going to touch you. Is that what it's saying? Does it mean if you trust God, you won't get coronavirus? Well, we have to be careful and remember where this is in the Bible. The troubles described in Psalm 91 are the covenant curses that God warned the Israelites would come on them if they broke the covenant with him. He warned the Israelites they would suffer these things if they broke his covenant. The agreement there was between God and them. And Psalm 91 is reassuring the faithful they won't come under those covenant curses if they are faithful to God and his covenant. For us in the New Testament age, that doesn't mean we'll be exempt from coronavirus. In Romans 8, it's clear we read, Christians were also experiencing the groanings and decay of this world. And you can't say, well, it will only be the groanings and decay of old age. Where do you get that from? It's interesting, Paul, I can't remember quite where this is, but he says somewhere, he'd left his friend Trophimus at a place called Miletus. Do you remember this verse? I've left him there sick. Well, that's an interesting one for those who claim Christians can expect to be healed of illness. There's a lot of healing in the Bible, and I hope we still believe that God heals. I find people are very selective in what they think God will heal. I haven't come across people telling amputated people that God will grow their leg back again. Of course God can. He doesn't seem to choose to at the moment. And he hadn't chosen to heal Trophimus. Paul left him sick. I wonder why. Or to put it another way, Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble. We share in its troubles. But I expect you know what he then said, do you? In this world you will have trouble, but don't be afraid, I have overcome the world. Jesus has taken the curse for our covenant breaking. So Psalm 91 is different for us from the Israelites back then, but it isn't wiped out of our Bible as just a historical interest. No. Because neither coronavirus nor anything else can take away the life we have in Christ. Psalm 91 still applies to us. Psalm 91 verse 7, a thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it can't take the eternal life you have in Christ. It can't touch that. We'll come back to that later. But so far, what I've been trying to do is show you the Bible explains coronavirus, where it comes from, and that means... We are not exempt. As inhabitants of this fallen world, we're not exempt. Next thing the Bible tells us, it tells us to listen to God. It tells us to listen. What is he saying to us in this situation? There's a Christian newspaper called Evangelicals Now. Some of you read it. And last month or the month before, there was an article by John Benton. Do you remember him? Came in December to our anniversary and to our... Um, morning on parenting. And in this article, he referred to secularised evangelicals. That phrase has stuck in my mind. I've been thinking about that phrase, secularised evangelicals. How can you be a secularised evangelical? Very easily. You can agree with the Bible's teaching, 
But in practice in your daily life, think like a secular person. The way you view the world can be just like secular people around you, as if God is confined to church, but not really anything to do with public life or providence. What happens now? Yeah, yeah, he did things back in history, but we think of him as distant now. And then coronavirus becomes just a matter of science. Instead of being science in God's hands. And if we see this science in God's hands, then we need to ask, what is he telling us by what he's doing now? What is he saying to us by allowing this thing? Now, we have to be very careful as we do this. A few years ago, as you know, the UK government very foolishly changed the law on marriage to crazily say that a man could marry a man and a woman could marry a woman. And there was a politician who said, because at the same time, that year, the River Severn flooded. And someone who didn't seem to have noticed that it keeps on flooding said, this is God's judgment on us for changing the law about marriage. Well, that is rather silly. Jesus tells us you can't jump to conclusions like that. Suffering and sin don't neatly match. Oh yes, sin does cause suffering. And sometimes specific sins cause specific suffering. But they don't neatly match in such a way you can jump to nice, simple conclusions. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't think, what is God telling us through this coronavirus? Do you remember what the troubles were called in Revelation 8 and 9? Remember what they were called? Trumpets. There are other uh, troubles in Revelation called other names, but these troubles were called trumpets. Now, when do you hear a trumpet? Maybe at a school concert, or you go to the Royal Albert Hall. But when did they hear trumpets? Well, they heard trumpets if the watchman on the city wall saw that there's an army coming. In other words, trumpets were to warn of approaching danger. And in Revelation 8 and 9, it's telling us the troubles that come on the world, like coronavirus, are trumpet blasts from God. They're warning us, God is not a distant, leave us alone sort of God. God isn't a sentimental pushover God. He's a God of judgment. Revelation doesn't say you can nice and neatly match it up. That person with coronavirus must have sinned more than that person without it. No, it doesn't say that. But it says these troubles that come on the world are God's trumpet blast to say he is not a God who's just going to leave us alone to get away with our sin. There is a further judgment coming. And one day it will be fully unleashed. And the only way to be safe is to be sheltering under the Lord Jesus. He's the only shelter strong enough because he on the cross took the judgment of God unleashed on him. So coronavirus says to you, God isn't some sentimental pushover. There is judgment coming. Are you sheltering under the Lord Jesus? I cannot presume that everyone here tonight is. Are you sheltering under the Lord Jesus? Sadly, what, what were the last verses we read in Revelation chapter 9? 
they were that most people took no notice. In fact, cursed God and carried on in their sin. What's this God doing, sending trouble? I can't believe in him. Instead of seeing he's a God warning me and giving me time to repent. Will you be like that? Or will you get under the shelter? Repent and trust in Jesus. What is God telling us as Christians through coronavirus? I expect there are many lessons, but here's a suggestion of one. I think it's a particularly important one. When I spent time in Zambia, I soon found that you couldn't tell what would happen the next day. You planned a trip somewhere, and then the car was broken down, and there were no spare parts in the area. Or you arranged to meet someone, and they wouldn't turn up, and there was no way of contacting them because there's no communication other than face-to-face. At least there wasn't back then, before mobile phones. And you'd spend the day waiting, sitting on a rock. You just couldn't tell what would happen the next day. And I remember thinking to myself, oh yeah, the Bible says you don't know what tomorrow will bring. And I've known that verse, and we often quote that verse, but we too tend to think we know what tomorrow will bring. But spending time in Zambia taught me you don't really know. Well, I reckon coronavirus has shown up that we don't really know. It's shown up the uncertainty of life. Will the schools be open in a week's time? Don't know. Will you be able to get toilet roll in the shops? (laughs) To be less serious. Don't know. Life is looking less uncertain. And our mortality is confronting us a little more obviously. So will we learn? Is this what God is telling us? To be less self-confident. Are we secularised evangelicals? We're in control. We've got it all planned out. We know what's going to happen. No. The book of James says, we're like a, a mist that appears for a little while and then it vanishes and is soon forgotten. Will we take that on board and feel our fragility and feel our dependence on God and feel this, given the fragility and the mortality, will we be more urgent to tell others the gospel they need and not presume, oh, there'll be another chance. They need the gospel that can give them stability and certainty in this uncertain situation. What else does the Bible tell us about coronavirus? Here's the third thing. It reassures us. We need this. It reassures us. What do we read about Jesus in Mark chapter 4? We won't turn to it now. I expect you know it well. We read that the wind and the waves obey Jesus. Many of you were taught that as children. And no, the wind and the waves obeying Jesus. Wonderful. As we read that story, they're asleep in a boat, head on a pillow. Sounds so lovely. It is lovely. Was it true on the 26th of December 2004? Did the wind and the waves obey Jesus on the 26th of December 2004? On that day, the waves swept into the coast all around the Indian Ocean, including sweeping away whole churches where people were gathered to worship Jesus. Were the wind and the waves obeying him then? Yes, the wind and the waves still obeyed Jesus that day because the Bible says Jesus Christ, the same yesterday and today and forever. He's always in control 
and he's always wise and good. But our tendency is, when we hit things like 26th of December 2004, we think we've got to throw aside one or the other. We either, either throw aside he is in control, and we say, no, not fully in control, or he's in control, but he's not, not those little details, not those things. Or we throw off that he's wise and good. The right response is to admit the limitations of our minds. And so be reassured Nothing has slipped out of his control. And he's the one who died to save those people in those churches in Sri Lanka. That's how much he loves them. He must have his wise and good reasons for what he did, even if we don't know them. But tsunamis are really big and a coronavirus cell is really small. So what about the really small things? Does the God who fills the universe bother with the really small things like a coronavirus cell? Where would you go to for your answer to that? I would go to a really small thing in Matthew chapter 10. Would you like to have a look at Matthew chapter 10? Now, the people Jesus was speaking to didn't know microbiology. Of course, Jesus did, but they didn't. So he took a really small thing they were familiar with in Matthew chapter 10, verse 29. Matthew 10, verse 29. I love this verse. Here's a really small thing. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? That's how small they are. You can get two for a penny. What a bargain. Yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from the will of your father. Think of that. Jesus is making a blanket statement there. He's saying there is not a sparrow forced to the ground in those woods out the back there, unless God allows it. There is not a sparrow forced to the ground in your garden if a cat gets it, unless God allows it. There's not a sparrow forced to the ground in the whole of the vast forests of Russia, unless God allows it. Now, this isn't written for our speculation, because we could really get ourselves tied in knots here, couldn't we? With all sorts of speculations. Uh, How can God be in control of all the little details and not responsible for the evil that happens? It's not written for our speculation. It's written for our comfort and reassurance. Notice, I said, not a sparrow falls to the ground without God allowing it. But what did Jesus say? He says, apart from the will of your father, your father. And let's read on, verse 30. And even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Oh, we had hair this morning, didn't we? And we're back to it. The Bible's example of God's control for the little things. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. It's written for our comfort and reassurance. Our equivalent today could be there is not a coronavirus cell will enter your body apart from the will of your Father in heaven. If it happens, he will have his reasons for allowing it. Jesus doesn't say he won't allow it. He's saying if it happens, he will have his fatherly, caring fatherly reasons for allowing it. Now, the Bible never turns that into irresponsible behaviour. Don't turn God's control into carelessness about your health 
or not taking notice of good advice. Do not do that. Be a good steward of your body. Have you ever thought of that? As Christians, we're familiar with we should be good stewards of money and we should be good stewards of time, but you should also be a good steward of your body. Look after it. Don't misuse it. Not so you can be a poser, but so you can serve God better. This verse is here for reassurance to God's children. Not for carelessness, but for reassurance in our fears and worries. Okay, let's move on, because there's something else that's probably the most important one the Bible tells us about coronavirus, and it's this. It gives us hope in the face of it. It gives us hope. Let's think of some of the things that people hope for. What do you reckon people around you are hoping for? Some are hoping for a nice holiday. That's not bad, is it? Hope for a nice holiday this year. Some are hoping for a pay rise and that business will go well. Some are hoping for a comfortable retirement. It's not wrong. Some are hoping to be free of illness. Hoping for a long life. Hoping to be worry-free. Or maybe just hoping for that event coming up. It might be a social event. It might be a sporting event. Now, what does coronavirus do to some of those hopes? It threatens them. It makes them uncertain. Coronavirus will stop some people's hopes being realised. But the person in Christ can say, nothing will separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's Romans 8. And the person in Christ can say, where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? It's been taken by Jesus. That's 1 Corinthians 15. And the person in Christ can say, to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. That's Philippians 1. In other words, we have a hope that coronavirus can't touch. It's like a magnet against plastic. It just can't touch it. It just can't do anything to it. Coronavirus cannot do anything to the believer's hope. Now, I'm not pretending that dying is easy and without any concerns for the believer. Let's be realistic. We're not pretending that it's without any concerns. I just quoted Philippians 1, but you might know what Paul goes on to say in Philippians 1. He says... I don't know what to choose. I'm torn between the two. I desire to go and be with Christ, which is better by far, but it's more necessary for you that I remain in the body. He says, I want to be with Christ, but I'm concerned for you that I'm leaving behind. This is a difficult, troubled world, all sorts of dangers, and I'm concerned for you. It isn't Christian to want death. It is Christian to want to be with Christ and to trust God for what and who we leave behind. Do you see the difference? It isn't Christian to want death. Death is an intruder into God's world. It would be better if it hadn't come in. But it is Christian to want to be with Christ, and to trust him for what and who we leave behind. Now I've got children, I sometimes think about when my dad died when I was 20, and my mother had already died. And I think of him leaving my sister and me, still relatively young, in a world full of troubles and so much uncertainty. And 
Well, she just started university two weeks before, and I was still at university, didn't even know what we were going to do. And I think to myself, is dying peacefully the greatest act of faith? I wonder if it is. Is dying peacefully the greatest act of faith? With your future and your children's future or your loved one's future in God's hands. Is that one of the greatest acts of faith, I wonder? It isn't Christian to want death, but it is Christian to say, I want to be with Christ and I can trust God for what and who I'm leaving behind. We have a hope that holds firm in the face of death. But I have to ask you, do you? Do you have a hope that holds firm in the face of death? Last week I quoted a famous 20th century preacher called Martin Lloyd-Jones. This week I'll quote his wife because I've been reading a good little book by her. And she went on a, on a trip with her husband. He was preaching in Canada. And she describes travelling in a train through the Canadian countryside. And they're going through a valley, and the hillside she was looking at was covered in dark green conifers. And there was one tree in the middle at the front that was different. It was a glowing gold-red colour. And she commented to a local who was travelling with them, look at that tree, isn't it beautiful? He said, yeah, it does look beautiful, but it's dead. It looks stunning now, but it's dead. And it will stay looking like that for the summer. But when the winter comes, the hard weather will take it and the tree will actually disintegrate. It will be broken. And then it won't look beautiful and you'll see it's dead. And Mrs Lloyd-Jones comments, Can't we easily be like that? A person may appear a wonderful Christian in the summer when life, I mean summer metaphorically, when life is easy and everything is fine and death looks a long way off. But when the hard weather comes on and the difficulties approach and maybe death looks more imminent, then you see if there's real hope, if there's real faith. Do you have this hope in the Lord Jesus? He gives us a hope that can stand the hard weather of coronavirus and any other trouble, including the grave itself. One last thing, we'll finish with this one. What else does the Bible tell us about coronavirus? It tells us coronavirus is another circumstance in which to ask, how can I glorify God? It's another opportunity to ask, how can I glorify God? Now, what's the purpose of your life? I don't mean what should it be. What is the purpose of your life? What's the aim? What is your ambition? It's not wrong to be ambitious. What are you ambitious for? In 1643, a large group of church leaders met in Westminster in London to produce one of the church's great statements of faith. It's called the Westminster Confession. And it included this question, which I'm going to slightly alter because it was in old-fashioned language. What is the greatest purpose of mankind? What's the greatest purpose of mankind? And the answer they gave was to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Well worth thinking about that. And they gave Bible reasons for it. To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. If your purpose in life is the same as the world, coronavirus is a threat to you. 
If your purpose is to glorify God, coronavirus is an opportunity. I mean, I'm not saying it's not nasty. I'm not saying it's not troubling. But it is also an opportunity. It's an opportunity to glorify God by displaying the hope we've just thought about. Those who go to home groups, I'd recommend going to home groups. What were we looking at last time? 1 Peter chapter 3. And there the Christians were told, always be ready to give a reason to anyone who asks you about the hope you have. And it's no coincidence it was written to Christians facing trouble and uncertainty. Because it's then that if you are stable and you are not racked with fears and you are joyful despite troubles, not full of grumbles, I hope you're not a grumbling Christian. That's almost a contradiction in terms. It's then that your unusual hope will show up. Will people see that you have a hope that glorifies God? It's also an opportunity to glorify God by doing good to others. Soon after those church leaders met in Westminster, do you know what happened in London? Did you remember I said 1643? Do you know your history? What happened 22 years later? Well, more than 22. Uh, It wasn't just that one year. 1665, Great Plague of London. And many of those church leaders stayed in London while others fled. And they stayed to care for the sick and the dying. And they stayed at risk to their own lives. They glorify God by doing good to others. To bring it closer to our time, do you know who in China first reported coronavirus to the authorities? It was a Christian Chinese doctor. And he got into trouble for it because the Chinese authorities didn't want to hear about something that's inconvenient, to put it mildly, like that. But he continued to look after his patients until he himself got the virus and died. He glorified God by doing good to others at immense cost to himself. How can it be an opportunity for us to glorify God by doing good? Well, there will probably be some people feeling lonely and isolated at home. If it comes to that, will you think of who they are and get on the phone to them? And not just once. And give them some company. You know, in our, in our society, you don't even have to do it. You don't even have to go there and catch the illness off them to give them some help. Do you have elderly neighbours who may be feeling rather worried, how's this going to work out practically for me? Can you offer to get some shopping for them? Go and get those toilet rolls and brave the crowds on their behalf. There might be people who are caused financial hardship. There's a news item... Um, following a taxi driver in Ireland. What's he going to earn? Nothing, because there's no one out wanting to be a customer to taxis. What's going to happen to his finances? I don't know. I suspect it will be hardship for him if that sort of thing happens here. Self-employed people facing hardship, some activity stopping, some businesses being hit. I don't know if this will happen, but maybe it will. Think of who might be hit. Will you be ready to give? And not just some token effort, but something that will actually significantly help people in difficulty. Let's not waste coronavirus. Use it as an opportunity to glorify God in unusual circumstances. 
Well, the Bible is a sure guide for every situation. Don't misuse that. It doesn't mean it tells you about hygiene and hand washing. It doesn't tell you that. Well, okay, there's a fair bit in the Old Testament, but that's not coronavirus specific. Take notice of good advice. But it does tell you what you most need to know. Use it to reassure you and to glorify God in this situation.